What is it that keeps people from salvation? You ever thought about that? Why don't people receive Jesus Christ as their Savior? Why don't they accept the forgiveness of their sins? Or to put it another way, we might ask, well, what's in their way? What are the obstacles to salvation? What might they have to give up? Or what might they have to do in order to follow Christ or to be saved? And uh, be saved. And what are they not willing to do? What are they not willing to give up? What is it that they just can't let go of to embrace Jesus Christ? Some might say that it's, well, it's some sin, some sin or some relational entanglement that keeps them from Jesus. They, they might be living a sinful lifestyle or have relationships they, they don't want to give up. And in our text in Romans chapter 9, the apostle shows us what the greatest obstacle is to salvation. The greatest obstacle to salvation. We could call it the severest bondage that can capture people and hold them in rejection of the truth about Christ. And that greatest obstacle is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. It's basically saying, I'm good enough or I'm getting good enough to be acceptable to God. Now, self-righteous people don't get saved. Why? Because they don't think they need it. They don't think they need salvation. Does that make sense to you? I've often said that the most difficult people to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ are those who are already religious. They're already, they've already bought into some system of religion, some system of works righteousness that has it all mapped out for them. They have been taught that if you do certain good works, and participate in certain religious rituals, that, that you're good. At least you're on the right track. And that's what hung up the Jews of Jesus' day. They thought they were already righteous. They thought they were already good people. They had spent their whole life pursuing a right relationship with God through their own efforts. And when the gospel came and condemned their sin, it did not compute because they thought themselves already righteous. So the Jews rejected Christ. For the most part, they rejected Christ, except, as we saw last week, a small remnant. A small remnant. And so in Romans chapter 9, in verses 30 and 31, the Apostle Paul presents a paradox. The Jews were looking for righteousness, and they were pursuing it diligently, as hard as they could, and they did not find it. The Gentiles weren't even looking, and they attained righteousness. Verse 30 of Romans chapter 9 again. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Now to the Jewish ear, this was all shocking. You would think, and a lot of people think that way today, that those who are pursuing righteousness, those who are trying to be good people, trying to do good things and right things, that those who are really working hard at it would achieve it, right? But Paul says that the Gentiles who were even, weren't even going after it, they weren't pursuing it at all. They attained it. Now the word translated pursue here and pursuing means to run after something swiftly, to chase something. It's an action verb, and it's also translated in the New Testament as persecute. 
That's persecuted. That's the same word translated persecution. To go after somebody or something with all you've got, as hard as you can, to go after something or somebody to swiftly chase after them. And so the Jews were swiftly chasing after that. We've already seen in Romans chapter 1, you don't need to turn back to it, what the Gentiles are after. The Gentiles are given over to their lust. That's what they're after, whatever lust makes you chase. They were given over to evil, whatever evil makes you go after. They were given over to a reprobate mind. And what does a reprobate mind go after? And we look at the world today, and we, we don't see the mass of people in the world pursuing the true and living God and his righteousness, do we? We see very few. How to be right with God is not the main pursuit of the world that we live in. The world is not madly trying to get right with the true God. Not at all. So here is the world. Here's all these Gentiles. Sometimes the word Gentiles comes from the Greek word ethnos, which means the peoples. Sometimes it's just the word Gentiles, which is everybody not a, a Jew. And sometimes it's the word Greek. It's used all the same way. But it, it's really the mass of people in the world who are not, not Jewish. And here is the world, all these Gentiles who weren't even pursuing righteousness, had no idea what it is. They didn't want it. They don't care. In fact, they want to do just the opposite, right? As soon as you say something, this is righteous, or this is the right thing to do, the world says, no, I don't want that, because this is, this is what I want to do over here. And when the gospel came, far more of these people believed than did the Jews. And so Paul implies here, isn't that shocking that the Gentiles who never even pursued righteousness as a way of life, or didn't pursue it at all, attained it. But that's exactly what happened when the gospel came. The Gentiles, Paul says, attained righteousness. Attained righteousness. Like the word pursue, Paul uses another strong action verb here. This, this portion of scripture is just full of action verbs. The word translated attained literally means to lay a hold of something, to seize it, to grab it. Jesus used the word in a negative sense when he warned his disciples. He said, walk while you have the light so the darkness will not overtake you, will not seize you, will not get a hold of you. So the darkness will not grab you and hold you and lay hold of you. And how did the Gentiles lay hold of or seize righteousness? Look at verse 30 again, where it starts with the Gentiles, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness, which is how? By faith. By faith. The key word in verse 30 is righteousness. We've talked about what righteousness is a lot in, uh, in the book of Romans. But righteousness, the word righteousness means the character or quality of being right or being just. In its simplest terms, as Paul uses it in, in the book of Romans, righteousness is how we are right with God, how we are in right standing with God. In fact, that's what justification means, to be declared righteousness, that, that we're okay with God in the fullest sense of what it means to be okay with God. So we need to understand something here that will help us get a hold of this, because Paul is bringing, and in the book of Romans, there are two concepts that we need to bring together, and we cannot separate them. And they are unconditional election 
and the attaining of righteousness. What is unconditional election? That we are called of God. We are chosen of God before the foundation of the world. That he, he called you. He elected you. Unconditional election. And then there's the attaining of righteousness. And we can't separate these two things. When God chooses unconditionally an unworthy sinner like you or me to be his child, to be saved from wrath and given everlasting joy. He just can't bring us into his fellowship, bring us into his family as his children without any righteousness. Do you see that? God is holy. God is perfect. God is just. Our God is consuming fire. He hates sin. His righteousness blazes against all God belittling attitudes and actions, imperfection of any kind cannot approach his blazing holiness without being punished. The only persons who stand before God without being destroyed are perfectly righteous people. Perfectly righteous. And the problem is there aren't any perfectly righteous people, except for Jesus Christ, of course. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, if you want to turn back to that for a second, third chapter of Romans, verses 9 and 10, he's talking about Greeks and Jews again. He says in verse 9, what then, are we better than they? No, not at all. And then he said, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, just as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. So the reality of God's unconditional election that he would choose us before the foundation of the world, that he would choose us to be saved like sinners, even as God's elect, we are not yet acceptable to God. We must attain righteousness. We must get a hold of, of righteousness. And since there is none righteous, no, not one, it's not a very likely achievement that we're going to achieve that in any way whatsoever. In fact, it's impossible. And that's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Because for those who believe, he is the very righteousness of God. God's righteousness was the gift of righteousness that we needed. And we can never perform ourselves. And this relates to one of the great truths of the new covenant. When Jesus died on the cross, all our iniquity, all of our sin, every evil thought, every dumb, stupid, wrong thing that we did, every one of our deeds was placed on him, and he bore it all. And when we receive Jesus Christ by faith, God imputes, or that means to credits to our account, all the righteousness of God. According to Isaiah 61.10, and this is a great picture, good way to put it, God wraps us in a robe of righteousness. And then in the book of Revelation, you see the righteousness of God. There, we're clothed in white robes to signify that we are the righteousness of Christ. And this has been called the great exchange. We exchange all of our sin for all of Christ's righteousness. All of our sin for all of his righteousness. 
Christ takes on all of our sin. As I said, all of us, like, as Isaiah said, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. All our iniquity fell onto Christ. And when we believe, we take on all of his righteousness. The great exchange. As far as the east is from the west, the Lord has removed our transgression from us. As far as the depths of the sea, our sin has been cast. Jan and I were watching a documentary about the blue planet or something like that, and they went clear down in these these robotic uh, submarines with cameras on them, clear down to the bottom of the depth of the sea under Antarctica. And then they showed a little bit of the Great Trench and those kind of things. And you go, that's deep, man. (laughs) That's a long ways down there. As far as the depth of the sea, which nobody has ever seen the depth of the sea until our lifetime, in all of the history of the world, nobody has ever seen it so down at the bottom of the depth of the sea there's these little tiny creatures still alive and the pressure down there is like 14 semi-truck trailers stacked on top of each other and then there's still these little tiny creatures created by God that are shoving things into this little hole (laughs) and so and so they can eat but that's that is so deep As far as the east is from the west, our sin's been removed from us. As far as the depths of that sea, and we became the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 3 continues in verse 21, third chapter of the 21st verse. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, how through faith, In Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. No distinction between Jew and Gentiles for those who believe. You might remember in Philippians that after the Apostle Paul encountered the risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he counted all of his achievements, all of his works, being a Pharisee of Pharisees, doing all these good things. He says, as unto the law, I was righteous. As best as I could, I kept the law and did all the right stuff. And then he says, I count that as dung, literally. Garbage. And he said in Philippians 3.9, he no longer counted, no longer counted on all that, on a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. When we receive Jesus Christ by faith, immediately we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus and welcomed into his family, into his presence, and all that that means. But the Jews had a real problem with this kind of righteousness. Back to verse 31 of Romans chapter 9, the 31st verse. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Israel, God's old covenant people, were looking for righteousness, looking hard, working for it hard, but they were all in the wrong place. They were pursuing, running swiftly after the wrong kind of righteousness, and boy, did they ever pursue it. The word translated law here means principle or standard. 
They pursued the principle of righteousness. To them, it was a total way of life. Their thought was, we must be righteous. We got to become righteous. We must be righteous. We got to do this and not do that. And we got to, can't do this. And we, we got to do that. And they had all this myriad of prescriptions, hundreds and hundreds of do's and don'ts pursuing the principle of righteousness. They added to the law of Moses 350 do's, one for every day of the Hebrew calendar year and some 250 don'ts. And then under each do and don't, they had categories and subcategories and all these ways pursuing the standard of righteousness incessantly as a way of life. And then based on their own self-styled standard of righteousness, self-styled standard of righteousness, they looked down their self-righteous noses and judged everybody else by their standard. Anybody who didn't meet their standard. That's why Jesus said, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, do not judge lest you be judged because by your standard of measure, you're going to be measured and judged. And so, you know, as soon as they set up their standard, they thought they had arrived and they stood on their platform of self-righteousness and then they judged everybody else. And Jesus said, hey, you're going to be judged by your own standard. And what does that mean? You don't cut it either. You don't, don't make it. And they did all of this how? By what? Works. Works. Proud-hearted legalists pursuing self-righteously a right relationship with God that says they went after the law of righteousness and they did not attain it. They didn't get it. And verse 32 tells us why. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Paul's already told us in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, that works doesn't cut it. Good deeds, doing good deeds doesn't make a person righteous. He said, by the works of the law, no flesh is justified or declared righteous in God's sight. Pursuing righteousness by works, and you can see how this works in somebody's mind. And, you know, when we pursue and try to get better by works, we think, I, I'm going to get better. I'm going to do better. New Year's resolutions become a way of life. <laughs> Day after day, they're trying to figure out how they can improve and what they can do. I'm going to act better. I'm going to think better. You know, I, I hurt that person's feelings. I, I can get a hold of this. I can, I can just do this better. And I'm going to talk better. And God will like me better. And then I'm going to be okay with him. That's not how it works. The only thing you can do to be saved is to believe that you can do nothing to be saved and cast yourself on the mercy of God. The only thing you can do to be saved is to believe that you can do nothing to be saved and cast yourself on the mercy of God. Some of the Gentiles did that, really great numbers of them. A few Jews did, a remnant at least. But Israel, for the most part, who all their life and all their history had pursued a standard of righteousness, never got it because they never sought it by faith. They tried to get it by law-keeping, through their own abilities, through their own works. In fact, a gracious, merciful salvation given as a free gift was an offense to the self-righteous Jew because it said, none of your works matter. None of your works count. And they couldn't handle that. 
And that's why they rejected Jesus with such anger, with such bitterness, such hatred, because they were so offended that all their life long, all these righteous deeds that they had piled up added to what? Zero. Zero. And when they looked at the cross and they were told that this man is dying for your sins, the cross offended them. It offended them. And Paul says they didn't get it because they didn't believe. And the Gentiles got it because they did believe. And why didn't they believe? Into verse 32 of Romans chapter 9. Why didn't they believe? They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. In college, we'd call that taking a powder. Have you ever heard that before? We just make that up at Idaho State University in the 70s. The phrase taking a powder used to mean that somebody left quickly or hurriedly from a room. And I don't know what the derivation of that was. But in the 70s, it meant to us that taking a fall in such a way, I think they call it a fail now. They say an epic fail. That's the same way we use taking a powder, you know, you know. How'd you do on that test? Well, I took a powder. How'd you do on the ski hill on Saturday? (laughs) Boy, you should have seen, you know, I took a powder. How'd you do in the the track meet? Well, when I hit that ground, you know, dust flew all all over the place. That's, That's taking a powder. And the whole passage of Scripture here uses these great action terms that express an intense, hurried action. Righteousness is pursued, swiftly run after. Then in this hurried pursuit, there is stumbling. There's taking a powder flat on your face. The word translated stumble is proskopto, proskopto, which means to strike hard against or to stumble. It means to hit something so hard that you take a bad fall. And the thing that causes the bad fall is a stumbling stone. It's a stone that's in your path that, that you trip over. And I want to pull out another strong word here. And after I do this, we'll look more closely at the quote from Isaiah. But I want you to notice in verse 33, where Paul quotes Isaiah, just as it is written, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We sang that this morning. The stone of stumbling, that's pretty easy to understand. It's it's the rock in the path. The person is, is in a hurry going someplace, and the person strikes that with their foot, presumably, and it causes a fall. A stumbling stone. But two other words are used here for a rock of offense. The word translated rock is Petra. Petra, which means a large stone. Remember when Jesus told Peter, I'm going to, Simon, I'm going to call you Peter. He uses the word Petros there, which is a small stone. Petra is the big stone. We call the, the big stone city in Jordan today. It's called Petra, where all this stuff is carved out of the rock. And so a Petra is a big stone, a big stone. And the word translated offense, the rock of offense, is the Greek word scandalon. Does that sound familiar? We get the word scandal from it. Now, a scandalon referred to a stick for the bait in a snare of a trap. The stick for the bait in the snare of a trap. You put the bait on the stick, and when the prey tries to get... The bait, it what? It springs the trap of the snare. But here, in this case, the snare is not a, a twine or a wire as they use a lot today. The snare consists of a large rock, a petra, that is coming down on the prey. 
The large rock was held up by the stick, and when the bait was grabbed by the prey, the rock came crashing down on the prey. In fact, we're going to see in Isaiah later, the prey is broken to pieces. Broken to pieces. In Greek, it loosely means, I have fallen and I can't get up. Here's the picture. A person is pursuing righteousness by his or her own deeds, by working as hard as they can, trying to become righteous, trying to become a better person. And they're working hard, and they're swiftly at it. And he or she inevitably hits the stumbling stone, takes a powder, the trap is strung, and they are caught in the snare. If it's a rock snare, there's no way of getting free. There's not getting out from under the rock. And even if it's a twine or rope snare, What? The harder the prey tries to get away, whether it's around their foot or around their neck, the more the noose is tightened. That is what it means to pursue a works righteousness. That is what it means to try to live a performance-based system where I'm doing some good stuff and I'm going to try to get better. And when this is all done, hey, maybe I'll be acceptable to God. I've done some good things. I've done some bad things. But what? The good things I've done far outweigh the bad things, don't they? I'm not like so-and-so over there who's, who's really bad, who's really evil. I haven't done that. These good things. And Paul is saying, that's what's going to happen to that kind of lifestyle. Now we have the idea of why self-righteousness is the greatest obstacle to salvation. So let's look at verse 33 more closely, because it will turn the corner. (laughs) It will turn the corner. The Apostle Paul quotes two passages from the prophet Isaiah and merges them into one passage. And here we see what the stumbling stone yet is, or better yet, we see who the stumbling stone is. Verse 33 of Romans chapter 9. Just as it's written, I lay a stone in Zion. In Zion, he's talking about Israel, Mount Zion, the the place of, of God's people. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So first of all, let's go to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28, the 16th verse. In Isaiah chapter 28, the prophet is warning Judah. At this point, Isaiah is warning the southern kingdom of their impending destruction. But the Jerusalem leaders were trusting in other gods. They were trusting in false gods to save them from that feared Assyrian invasion. Isaiah basically says that in doing this, in trusting in these false gods that's going to save them from from destruction here, that they were relying on lies. They were relying on falsehoods to save them, so to trust in other gods for their deliverance was futile. And and he says, you've made a covenant with death. (laughs) You know, you've covenanted with the wrong people here, with the wrong thing, that's death. But he says, the Lord has set a stone, placed a stone and a sure foundation And that he is the only basis for both physical and spiritual salvation. Verse 16 of Isaiah chapter 28. Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, and a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, who believes in it will not be disturbed or will not be in a hurry. Uh, That word disturbed, or in our song we sang, it was translated, will not be in haste. You know, well, what does that mean? The word here for translated haste or disturbed refers to an inner 
agitation. You know, you're just all stirred up and you have all this anxiety and it's that feeling that you get where, where something is really wrong but you don't know what it is and it's got you all stirred up. You know, I tell some people, and Jan knows this, I don't take naps in the afternoon. <laughs> and the reason I don't do that is when I wake up from an afternoon nap, I think the whole world's coming to an end. I don't know why that is. I don't know why the Lord would put me through that <laughs> and why I'd have to trust in him for just taking a stupid nap. But you just get this feeling that, oh, no, something's horribly wrong, and I just don't know what to do about it. That's the word. He who believes in him will not be disturbed. And in architecture, ancient architecture, the cornerstone, now in architecture day, we, we put this nice little plaque on the corner of a building. We call that the cornerstone. That's, that's not the way they used it. The cornerstone was a stone that they cut out, and it was the most important, the most costly stone in the building and the foundation. Because the cornerstone, which was laid first, established the quality and the craftsmanship for all the other stones in the building. If you're just building a shed, as it were, you take this piece of rock and you lay it down and say, okay, everything can just be this crummy piece of rock. You know, if you're building the temple of God, you take the best stone you can find, uh, the kind of stone that it is, usually limestone, and you chisel it just right. Uh, one of the ways that you can tell when you visit the Temple Mount in Israel, what part was of the Temple Mount was Herod's, is because Herod put a bevel on the top in the bottom, the you know, stone would come out and then it would come straight down and bevel back in. And so all the beveled stones were, were shown that that was Herod's. He established the quality that this building is to be made out, made out of. And so the cornerstone was the first stone that was laid. And then every other stone was laid in alignment, perfect alignment with the cornerstone, up and down and, 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 and back and forth. It was a costly stone. It was a tested stone meaning they had already known that it's, it's going to take the weight. It's, it's going to be tested. It's, it's what it is. And you could firmly rely and build the whole building or build your life, as it were, on the cornerstone. And, of course, Scripture tells us that the cornerstone laid in Zion is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone. The foundation for all of life and faith is Jesus, the cornerstone, but he was rejected. The Jews saying, we're not going to build our lives on that. We're not going to rely on that. And the Apostle John says, Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. The other passage that Paul quotes is Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 8, the 14th verse. Because here we see a vivid picture of what happened when Israel rejected Christ. Verse 14 of Isaiah chapter 8, talking about the Messiah. And it says, verse 14, He shall become a sanctuary. He shall become a holy place. Now, when I studied that this week, I kept wanting to go over to 1 Peter, where he is the precious stone and we are being built together as a holy place. You know, so there's all kinds of that imagery here. But he shall become a holy place. But to both the houses of Israel, and I would take that to mean both Israel and Judah, he will become a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
Many will stumble over them. They will fall and be broken. Literally, the word there is shattered. They will fall and be shattered. They will even be snared and, and caught. In Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ, in its pursuit of self-righteousness, by their own good deeds, by working as hard as they could get, trying to become righteous, many stumbled over Christ, many struck the stone hard, they took a powder, they were captured in a snare from which there was no escape, and they were broken into pieces. So let's turn the corner. (laughs) Back to Romans chapter 9, the second part of verse 33. Romans chapter 9, second line in verse 33. And he who believes in him, he who believes in the stone, he who believes in Jesus Christ will not be disappointed. Literally it says, will not be put to shame. Not to be put to shame. A better way to translate that as we compare with Isaiah 28 verse 16, shall not be fearful. Whoever believe has no reason to fear. There's none of that inner agitation. There's none of that troubling of spirit. There's none of that bone-crushing judgment to come. God will cause some people to stumble. God will cause some people to be offended. And he will be a crushing and a smiting stone in judgment. The stone of stumbling is also the stone of judgment. Those who are caught under the large stone, the petra of the snare, are crushed. And God will crush all who reject him. Turn to Peter's first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. The second Peter, second chapter of 1 Peter, because Peter quotes the same passages that we have been looking at. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. This is going to sound very familiar by now. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay as in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. The cornerstone is a precious value for us who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and of a rock offense. For they stumble because they are what? Disobedient to the word. Can you imagine that? Pursuing righteousness, trying to keep every letter of the law, and in doing so, they're disobedient to the word of God. And to this, and the New American Standard adds a noun there, to this doom, they were also appointed. The Lord will be a crushing stone to those who are disobedient to his word. And the disobedient are appointed to this. God will crush all who reject him. But for those who believe on him, whoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. The stone is of precious value for those of you who believed. And the, the issue then is faith. By faith, through faith, those who have faith, And so the question is, do you believe or don't you believe? That's the issue. You must decide about Jesus Christ. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? In hearing the word of God this morning, Jesus has been placed before you, as it were, right in front of you. 
You can't turn to the left. You can't turn to the right. You, you've, you've got to be there in front of Jesus. And you have a choice to make. I have presented him as the rock of salvation as best as I can this morning. And there's a sense that he's been placed in your path. And you cannot ignore him. And you can try to keep running along and keep on saying to yourself, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm going to keep doing things my way. Oh, I'll give him something or other on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week, I can just keep on living like he, he's really not there. He really doesn't exist. It's my life, and I have a right to live it the way I want to live it. I can ignore Christ. I can find a way around him. After all, I've been doing that for a long time now. Hey, I'm good. But Jesus Christ is in the middle of your road. He's going to say, no, you're not. You're a vile, wretched sinner, and all your righteousness adds up to filthy rags, and you can't get right with God by your own works. And he's going to make you stumble in the path, and he's going to offend you. And you can just be offended and be like the Greeks and just call this whole thing foolishness, and you can try to get around it. You can try to go your own way, and then he's going to be a smiting stone, the Bible says, in judgment. Or you can say, I believe it. I believe it. And if you believe it, you have nothing to what? Nothing to fear. No judgment and fear. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. We read that several times. I want to read it again in Romans chapter 9, second part of verse 33. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. And then the Apostle Paul repeats the exact same thing 11 verses later. I could think of no other place in Scripture where Paul even quoted the same passage twice in the same book, let alone in 11 verses later. Look in chapter 10 of Romans down to verse 11. He repeats it. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be, be, be disappointed. And, and what Paul presents in between repeating the same verse is how to be saved. How to lay hold of the righteousness of Christ. Verse 8 of this 10th chapter. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. The word is near you in your mouth. We'd say it's, it's right on the tip of your tongue. It's right on the tip of your tongue. It's in your heart. And what is that word? That is, he says, the word we are preaching. The word of faith, which we are preaching. was that word of faith? Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You confess it with your mouth. You speak it. You say it. It's a public profession of faith. Jesus is my Lord. And it says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. And what is happening here is when you believe on the inside, it necessarily comes to the outside, doesn't it? Jesus is my Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Romans 10, 10, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. That's what we've been talking about this morning. You lay hold of the righteousness of Christ, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in what? Salvation. Salvation. Verse 12, 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, all abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Then that great promise in verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for speaking to our hearts this morning. And Father, if there's one or more of us here this morning that maybe we've forgotten, maybe we got away, it's away for a little while, but Father, we've been trying to circumvent, circumvent Jesus Christ somehow in our life and the way we live, Father, I thank you that he's been placed right before us this morning and shown to be who he is, the rock of our salvation on whom we can believe and firmly rest, not only for now and our life upon this earth, but for all eternity. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit, working in our hearts, Father, and bringing faith to us, that we would have the necessary faith to believe, to believe in Jesus. And we would have the necessary faith as believers in Jesus Christ to confess him as Lord. Lord of Lord and kings of kings to whom belong all the glory. Lord of lords to whom I own my life and I will serve him and I will love him for all eternity. And for this, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of invitation is number 300. The Savior is waiting. He's standing right in front of you. You can either embrace him in salvation and faith or commit your life to him, or you can find some way around. And we already know how that doesn't work. So as we stand and sing our invitation, number 300. I ask you to embrace your Savior, Jesus Christ.